The city was Brussels. The occasion was a meeting of European Union bureaucrats and the focus of humiliation was me. It was 1990 and I was a career civil servant in the UK government's social security department. Every couple of months, my boss travelled to grand meetings in Brussels where, along with officials from all other nations of the European Union, she would discuss rather dull regulations governing social security for migrant workers. I knew virtually nothing about this, but someone had to sit behind her in a sharp-looking suit, looking like they were a vital part of the UK delegation, and that month it happened to be me. Uh, My job was to look knowledgeable and represent Her Majesty's Government with grace and dignity. Now, the meeting was scheduled to last three days, and as it started on a Monday morning, the British delegation flew to Brussels on Sunday afternoon, dressed in our casual clothes. My particular leisure ensemble that April afternoon consisted of jeans, a baggy sweater and sneakers. But rest assured, my suit, my dress shirt, tie and shiny black shoes were safely tucked away in my luggage. What could go wrong? Our hotel was a train ride away from Brussels airport and after boarding the train I stowed my luggage in the overhead rack and sat down. The suburbs sped by and before we had time to say Hercule Poirot we arrived at our stop, disembarked, began the short walk to the hotel as the train moved gently away with my luggage still on it. I don't remember the train's final destination, but it was as far away as you could get in a country as small as Belgium, and I was not reunited with my suitcase until the final afternoon of the meeting. So, it's Monday morning, and I turn up at this meeting of European Union officials as part of the UK delegation, wearing jeans, a baggy sweater, and sneakers. And what happened next was a priceless and unscripted European comedy, as the members of the other delegations reacted to my appearance. And shocking as it may seem, they all responded the way you'd expect. The rest of the British delegation pursued our national pastime of being embarrassed and apologised profusely to everyone who'd listen for letting the side down, fearing I'd started an international incident. The Germans were shocked that someone could be so inefficient as to leave their luggage on a train. The French thought it was a sinister British plot to undermine Europe. The Spanish shrugged and said, manana. And the Irish fell about laughing and took me to the bar. A short while later, Margaret Thatcher resigned as Prime Minister. Bit of a coincidence, don't you think? 
nine weeks ago, we set out on what seemed a similarly stress-free journey. We met a handsome young lad, barely old enough to shave, the youngest in a family of farmers. What could go wrong? There was something about him that warmed our hearts and coaxed us into travelling with him these two months. But on the train, as the train sped through the suburbs, we discovered it wasn't all the Lord is my shepherd, he makes me lie down in green pastures. What a journey it was. We faced giants. We escaped psychotic sovereigns, we wrote poetry, we fell in love, we went to war and we worshipped God. We danced next to our blessed travelling companion as he brought God into the centre of his country's life and we knelt before him as he was crowned king. We recoiled from him in horror like we didn't even know him as we watched the fool almost throw it all away in a horror show of self-destruction before having our emotions ripped by his humble penitence last week. And now it has come to this. Nine weeks after we set sail, collect your luggage, our voyage is at an end. We've come a long way. King David is now at least middle-aged and his children are adults. But this is not a game of happy families. What could go wrong? Well, plenty. The Hebrew scriptures tell us that the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and fourth generations and the royal house of David proves it to be true His family is reeling from the aftermath of his moral failings. In fact, there has been almost continual turmoil in David's palace since that business with Bathsheba and Uriah. A series of terrible events have beset his children. One of them, his son Absalom, seethes in resentment of his father. And that's putting it mildly. He hates David so much that when we pick up the story in 2 Samuel, Absalom has led an armed rebellion against his father, who has vacated the throne and fled Jerusalem. He is now hiding out in a nearby forest with an army of loyalists. So here's the rightful king in exile following a coup by his son. The nation is in civil war that started as a family feud. And like all civil wars, the toll is devastating. On one day alone, 20,000 men are killed in battle. This is an ancient Gettysburg. There is no pain like the pain of a parent. David naturally wants his throne back, but equally he wants his son to be safe. And he issues orders to Joab, the leader of his forces, to fight to regain the city, but to spare the life of Absalom. 
Yes, he was a rebel who overthrew David's sovereignty, but he was still David's boy. To cut to the end of the story, Joab leads the loyalist forces to victory, but tragically Absalom is killed. And when the news of victory is brought to David, he does not rejoice. By now we are familiar with the emotional David, the passionate David. And we know he records those emotions in poetry. A few weeks ago we read his stately psalm of grief when his friend Jonathan died. Last week we read a profound psalm of repentance following the whole Bathsheba and Uriah episode. But now there is no poem. Now he doesn't have the composure to write his emotions. The words that come out of his mouth are not poetic or beautiful, but raw. They are unrestrained and unsurpassed in their agony. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Of all the sermons in this nine-week series, I have been looking forward to this one the least. Because we behold where David languishes this morning, and I fear this place. He writhes in the depths of personal tragedy, a tragedy I have not experienced, but which causes me dread. And so I have struggled with this sermon. I really have not known how to tackle this passage or what to say to you this morning. I could keep my words focused on the purely cerebral. If I were to do this, I would talk about David's inner conflict. How he felt pulled by two loyalties that could not be reconciled. His duty as king to put down the rebellion and his duty as a father to protect his son. I could do that, and if I did, you might get something out of it. I would perhaps tell you about a time in my own life when I too faced the tug of war between two loyalties uh, and couldn't see a way to be true to both. And then I'd perhaps try uh, to apply the text to your lives and tell you to live patiently and wisely in your own situations of conflict. I would try to reassure you that God understands those struggles because he too experienced them in Jesus. He knows how it feels when your sense of duty to your family seems to conflict with your loyalty to God. That's one option. But I won't take it because that would be ignoring the elephant in the text. David's devastation is so total and his pain so palpable that we can't ignore it and remain cerebral about this passage. Another option is to talk about how David lost his perspective that day. 
how he allowed his emotions as a parent to get the better of his judgment. How, as king, he should have just pulled himself together and fought the good fight and crushed the rebellion without his emotions. But he let his personal feelings get in the way. I could have told you that, but you see, I don't believe it. Those of us who are parents allow our love for our kids to cloud our judgment. That's what parents are for. If they're not biased occasionally, there's something not quite right. Which parent here has not wanted to argue with a teacher when their child's report card contained a poor grade? What parent among us has not wanted to stride onto the field and remonstrate with the umpire when their child is called out on a strike that was obviously a ball? We don't do it because we want to be a good example to our child of accepting the umpire's decision, but we still want to. Parents lose perspective. We are supposed to. If you think that's bad, you should see God. Just think about how his love for you is so totally unbalanced. Get a picture in your mind of the father of the prodigal son. Uninhibited in his joy. Undignified in hitching up his clothes and running to welcome his child. Shamefully unbalanced. That is God. His passion exceeds his judgment. So we can surely understand David's failure to obey the laws of good military governance. The textbook said the leader of the rebellion had to die. David, the rebel's father, did not agree. And I love him for it. So I'm not going to pretend that David messed up when he allowed his emotions to get the better of his rational mind. So there are two sermons I'm not going to preach. Here's my conclusion on this terrifying glimpse into the shattered heart of King David. Don't despise the place of tears. And don't try to rush too soon out of the valley. You see, it's human to want to move on quickly from our suffering. We have this expectation. Something bad has happened. Get over it. Take the medicine and get back to normal life. And in our culture, normal is freedom from suffering. Instead of seeing pain, whether physical or emotional, as a companion, a teacher, even as a friend, as do people in many other cultures in the world, 
Westerners see it as an enemy to be avoided or as a brief unwelcome guest who should be leaving as soon as it has arrived. But I want to say something else too. And it's simply a verse from Paul's letter to the Colossians where our patron instructs us to be emotionally available to each other. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The likelihood is that at any given moment you and I know people who are weeping and our patron's instructions are to weep with them Not to give them sound theological advice, not to correct their muddled thinking, not to reprimand them for their doubts or lack of faith, not even to speak, but to weep. This is a good place to dock at the end of our voyage with David. We've been enriched by his example, moved, encouraged, and chastened by it too. Don't forget your luggage. And may you travel on this week, no longer in David's company, but with other hurting souls, weeping eyes, and broken hearts. Be the bringer of good news, the sharer of heavy loads, the bearer of Christ on their journey of tears. Amen.